I'll tell you a sweet thing that I just thought about. I, in my traveling in the last two weeks, uh, somebody said to me, um, somebody who listens to this class on uh, Dharma Seed quite regularly says, because, you know, we, we always turn on the tape at this point, and uh, he or she, I don't remember, said, um, what are you doing before the tape gets turned on? Because she said, every week you say something like, you know, uh, if we didn't do anything else except the last 10 minutes, it would be the most significant part of this class. So what are you doing in that last 10 minutes that's the most significant part of this class? And... uh, you know, I'd, I'd forgotten about it until we were in the last five or ten minutes, and I was thinking to myself again, if we only did that, um, you know, these are individual stories of individual real people, but the you know what we think about is Dharma wisdom. You think about the just by listening all the kinds of lessons that we try to put into. Dharma talks or teach about that human beings are incredible in 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 their capacity to care about other people. I've been reading um, Karen Armstrong on the uh, Twelve Steps of Compassion. It's a really wonderful book. Maybe I'll tell you more about it next week if I've finished it. But she talks about the history of the. Uh, the evolution of human beings. And uh, she talks about the evolution of the, the, um, the ability to care. Uh, the, uh, and uh, of all things, just early this morning, I was reading about uh, some speculations, an anthropological speculation, I don't, I don't think she made it up, that somehow in the development of... Uh, Homo sapiens, upright human beings in the you know proto form of what we are now. Uh, the the lack of hair in in human beings as they develop body hair, unlike uh, in in primates, say before us, in primates babies can hang on to their mother's hair, and say in people they get they don't have hair or body hair to hang on to. The mother has to hold on to them. And talking about that, that it probably was a significant developmental uh, change um, in the development of, of, of brains and, and emotions, because you had to recognize who's yours and hold on to it. And that uh, when you think about Somebody asked me the other day, in the course of some whole other discussion, they said, um, uh, what would be a good image? Uh, this person said, I'd like to have an image when I'm meditating. What, uh, what would be a, a visual image that would um, be the icon of compassion? And I said, well, you know, in the, in the Metta Sutta, it says, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings. I said, but it's not just a Buddhist image, you know. Uh, for, first of all, I have to say that I don't think that 
mothers, particularly more than fathers, have that protective feeling about that. I like to think that uh, I think that mothers and fathers, and not even mothers and fathers, but adults in a world with babies, have a feeling to take care of them, even if it's not their particular one. But I think I was thinking about all the particular art representations of mothers and children, whether Mary Cassatt or La Pieta or uh, all of the representations of mothers with children, where you look at that and you say, oh, I know that feeling. I, and that, that somewhere along the line, human beings have that. And when I listen to us all making, you know, saying our thoughts about other people, I always, I most often have the feeling, and I'm sure you do too, that when someone says, I'm thinking about my friend so-and-so who's dealing with this and that, I don't even know who's speaking, and I don't know who the so-and-so is, but the, you feel the vibe of somebody's in difficulty, and you feel for the person, and you feel for the people who know that person, even you don't know them. And that seems to me to be maybe... Maybe one of the two most amazing things about human beings. For a long time I was thinking it's the most amazing things about human beings is that we have that that capacity for empathy. We don't even have to know who and we feel for them. I'm beginning to think, I don't want to make it hierarchical, but the capacity, I'm I'm thinking the other thing that's amazing about human beings is the, the heroic ability in spite of what happens, for most people, they want to get up the next day and have another day and try again. And uh, in, uh, uh, what is her name? Naomi Shihab Nye, the Palestinian-American poet who wrote On Kindness. She said, and, and she's talking about the kinds of things that confront us in our lives. And she said, and yet every day we get up in the morning and put on our shoes and socks and go out and mail letters and buy bread. That we get up the next day and we do it again, even in spite of the fact that we think I can't. And you hear about a bereavement or a loss. And you think, I'll never be able to do that again. But we can. And that's an amazing thing, that, that somehow the mind rejuvenates itself and wants more and that we care about other people so much. So what I had in mind to talk about this morning, and I shifted the order as, as I was walking back and forth, I was, I was going to talk about, I wanted to tell you something about part of my trip and what happened, and because I learned from it, and I was touched by it, and I thought you might be too. And because I thought it held so many layers of truth in it, I was thinking about, when we tell Dharma stories, uh, you tell the same stories over and over again. And Mark correctly pointed out before, you know, if you hang out here long enough, you know many of my stories. People tell me stories. People sometimes tell me stories that they say, you know that story that you told a long time ago? And then they tell me a certain story that I have forgotten. But then they tell it to me. I say, oh, that's a good story. Thank you very much. You know, Now it resurrects for me and I can tell it again. But... Uh, that we tell stories because they're, they're meant to make a point. Dharma stories, the Buddha said this. Or that. But we could tell any story, and it probably makes the same point. Maybe the archetypal stories, the mythic stories, 
are the ones that put our mind in the direction of or, or set the set the imprint for us to understand the the present day story. Not to be too uh, obtuse about that. Uh, obtuse about that. I'll tell you the story I was thinking about. The story that came to mind. I, I first of all went to Washington D.C. and I was part of a two-day program run by an organization called Buddha Fest, which. Uh, uh, up to now, has done uh, Buddhist conference weekends, mostly Buddhist mo- uh, um, movie festivals. So for three or four days, and in, in I think the spring usually, they have a movie festival. They showed movies actually in these two days too. I'll tell you what the movies were right away. Um, but and they have movies, and they have uh, Dharma teachers who teach in between the movies. This was uh, this was different. It was not a movie weekend. It was a weekend that was um, meant to be a way of um, commemorating uh, what, in the collective consciousness, is a very big event—the event of nine eleven—and uh, to um, honor the people who lost their lives and uh, to honor the people who lost their lives trying to save other people. And also, as it meant to be, it was hoped to be in the minds of the people who conceived it, um, healing somehow. It was meant to be, first of all, a refuge during the weekend uh, for people to go to. They went home in between, but they came from Saturday morning till Saturday night and Sunday morning till Sunday night. It was held in the Woolly Mammoth Theater in uh, downtown Washington, D.C., which seats about 200 people. It's quite an intimate space. And for people who didn't want to be around with watching reruns of images all day long, we thought it would be a a mild place. Uh, We would certainly talk uh, talk about topics that are germane to the event, like how do we metabolize a national uh, event like that? How do we go forward uh, with uh, a, a, a rededication to peace? How is that possible? Because it's frightening, and the response to fear is often antagonism. How can we compass, acknowledge the fear and move towards it to compassion and a wish for reconciliation and a wish for a good and peaceful world. So that's what the weekend was planned as. And in the first, uh, I think that's what the weekend turned out to be, by the way. Uh, In the first panel on the first morning, uh, three of us, Ruth King, who uh, is a Dharma teacher uh, in... uh, North Carolina, and myself, and Lama Suryadas, we're all talking about um, just a panel. Why did you come here? What did you hope? What did you think? What we, what did you want to say as a beginning? And what I said as, uh, as my contribution, some of you will remember this event, is I, t- I talked about what had been our experience here uh, on the day after 9-11, because it was a Wednesday. September 11th was a Tuesday, and we were here on Wednesday morning. And more people were here than usual. 
And on Tuesday afternoon, by Tuesday afternoon, many of the churches uh, in Marin had opened their doors and put out signs, you know, welcome, anybody wants to come and sit quietly. Because people want to sit quietly somehow. It's an overwhelming event. And what I wanted to say about Wednesday morning, uh, which I remembered as the clearest two things for me, is that when we came, uh, people wanted to talk a little bit about uh, how they were connected to it. There was some there was some short lines of connection, like my brother-in-law's twin brother worked in the in the World Trade Center, but was late for work that morning, or I'm through this or through that. We're not so it's not so many degrees of separation from events that happened, but we are in California, and not so many people had direct connections. And then we talked some about how did you feel when you heard the news? What was your feeling in you? And where were you when the phone rang? And who told you when you turned on the TV? And what did you do? And talked about that for a while. And I said, and this was really why I wanted to say the whole story, I said what we did that morning that was uh, the most consoling is uh, we played that the, the chant of metta that we play often here, um, which um, we play there, as a matter of fact, which, if you don't know, is a chant of a, a woman uh, singing the, a, a metta chant, which means, which, the words of which are, may I uh, be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, May I have ease of well-being. May everyone who lives in my community be free of danger and have mental happiness and physical happiness and ease of well-being. May my mother and my father, my whole family, and all my friends, and slowly, slowly, it builds up in a classical way of practicing loving-kindness through all these layers. May all beings everywhere as high as uh, the highest heavens, as low as the deepest depths, may all beings without exception be free of suffering. And she chants it in Pali. And then in the end of the CD, if you play the last cut of that disc, she chants it in English. And, uh, and I remember that we played it here and we listened to it. And I remember also that we all took refuges and precepts together. And I remember how consoling it was to me, and I think to other people as well, in such a moment like that where you don't know what to think. Everybody's mind is completely just stopped in its tracks, really, that in a, with a shock of such um, purposeful devastation, sometimes there are... Uh, there's a, there's a catastrophe like a tsunami in Phuket. But nobody did that purposely. You know, there's a tsunami in Phuket. A lot of people were bereaved or lost. Or, but nobody did it purposely. The idea that somebody could do this purposely just stops the mind. And to sit in a room with 100 or 150 people who all say, 
I undertake the vow to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the vow to abstain from taking which is not that which is not freely given. I undertake the vow not to exploit. Not to harm anything, not to harm with speech, not to harm with my sexuality. I undertake the vow to keep my mind clear. So, in fact, I can fulfill those other vows. I'll keep my mind from being intoxicated. I've been more saying recently, <clears throat> I undertake the vow. To abstain from behaviors that cloud my mind and lead to heedlessness. In the classical form, it says to abstain from intoxicants. And it, and it quite clearly, in the commentary, it means, in the commentary, it means classically intoxicants that you, that you take into your body, like alcohol, fermented things, uh, or some sort of drugs that intoxicate the mind. But there are activities that intoxicate the mind. Too much listening to hateful talk on the radio um, could be an intoxicant. Um, fomenting um, hate in the minds of other people is intoxicating. Lots of things that could be intoxicating. And I, I talked about the fact that uh, that 150, 100 or 150 people is not the whole world. But the fact that in this world, 100 or 150 people in a state of some sort of shock can say, you know what, that's what I pledge myself to do. And to think that for 2,500 years, people who have dedicated themselves to a practice of a path of peace in those kinds of circumstances can respond with a dedication to peace. That story, by the way, we can only tell, we'll tell this morning as a Buddhist story because we took Buddhist vows. But you read in other religious traditions of martyrs who go to their death, and at the end they say, Hallelujah, and this is what's meant to be. But that hate does not arise in them, that the mind is so dedicated to peaceful response. And I talked about that we had done that here. And I felt, I felt good about sharing that as a practice, that the, the, the coming together once a month that we do on Tuesday mornings to take refuges and precepts is, not, is a profound practice. It's more than I'll talk nicely to my partner because I cause too much grief with my idle chatter. It's really a profound decision to say, I undertake the vow to abstain from harming living beings. If the whole world took that, tomorrow we could have a different world. The whole world would be different. Nobody would hurt anybody else. And as soon as everybody stopped hurting everybody else, everybody could relax. Remember earlier I said the, 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 the instruction from the yoga teachers is relax. If, no, if we were sure that nobody was going to hurt us, we could relax. And if we relaxed, we would see the truth that everybody is just like us. Everybody's a person. Everybody wants to go home and have a life. Everybody hurts when the people they care about are in trouble. 
It's a profound practice, that dedication. And I wanted to tell you one other story from that conference. By the way, I'll just tell you because otherwise I might forget and it just went in my mind. It was not a film festival, but uh, the next to the last thing they did on Sunday night uh, was play a film, and the film they played was Buck. <laughs> so did you did you see Buck? Did you see Buck? Is it in Israel? No. You should see if you can see it somewhere in a movie house. Buck is the name of a man. is a contemporary man, and he plays himself in the movie. And uh, who didn't see it? Okay. So I tell you a quick synopsis. Buck and his uh, brother were the youngest rope lassoing champions in rodeo roping at the time that they were young, which were they were about my age. This is 1940s. And they were famous for it. They went on television. They were on the Ed Sullivan Show. They were on the back of uh, cereal boxes for children, uh, advertising the Cheerios or something or other from uh, their rope tricks. And uh, their mother died when they were young, and their father was an incredibly abusive guy who literally beat them, beat them even when they, they won all their contests. He trained them. They'd win, and he'd beat them because they hadn't been perfect. And they lived with that father until they were teenagers, and it was discovered by um, one of the high school coaches who saw him not take off his clothes to take a shower. That when he took off his clothes, he was covered with welts and bruises. And he was taken out from his family, placed in a foster home of very kind people, and grew up to be a completely kind and good and uh, firm, decisive, expert horse trainer. He was the uh, consultant to Robert Redford on the horse whispers and the stand-in for him. And in the movie, which is great, you see him train horses, and it's miraculous. He walks along with his horse walking next to him, and he says, you know, this horse knows what I want. If I slow down, and he slows down, the horse slows down. And if I pick up the pace, the horse picks up the pace. In the meantime, he's not touching the horse, and he's not pulling the rope, nothing. The horse is watching him and doing what he's doing. And he trains horses, and he shows people how to train horses. He's very decisive, and he's very firm, and he's incredibly kind. And I think, and those people here who saw it, we talked about it in class a few weeks ago, you get uplifted by the film because it's such a, it's a great film and it's wonderful to see the horses being trained. And I, I think for all of us, we decided that what's most exciting about it is here's this person who's terribly, terribly abused and, and maltreated as a child who somehow, he says as an adult, as a growing up person, he thought to himself, that's a terrible way to live. I don't want to do that and didn't do it. It's such a triumph of uh, really what you might think of as free will. If he had grown up to be a serial killer, you might say, well, look, this happened because of that, and it would make sense. But he didn't, and it's such a triumph of human spirit. And we, the, we the, the organizers of this conference, played it at next to the end. The last thing in the evening was kirtan, chanting. But the next to the last was buck, because the people would feel... 
inspired about the human spirit. The world's in a terrible shape, and much of the world is, is downtrodden and beaten and misused, but it could be different, and people could pick up. So the other thing that I wanted to tell you from that conference is on the morning of the second day, on the morning of the second day, uh, the first thing that we did, and people had spent, a, it was a quiet and a modulated and thoughtful first day. The morning of the second day, we asked the people sitting there, those 200 people, Ruth King led them in a guided reflection of where were you on that morning and how did you feel? Because one of our hopes was that for people for whom it still uh, was traumatic in their body, that it might be a way to heal that trauma a little bit. Because one of the ways of healing trauma is to really confront it in a way that you feel held and comfortable and be able to give voice to it. I don't know if you have a completely healed trauma, but one of the ways it makes it better. I'm not sure that it completely ever heals. And so, and then after we, she led that, there were 200 people, she said, if you could tell your story in uh, a minute or a minute and a half, why don't you take the microphone and tell? And different people said where they were and how they heard and uh, what they felt and how they were connected to it. And the last person, maybe 10 or 15 people shared, and the last of those people who shared was a woman who said, I just retired two years ago as a a police person. Uh, I uh, I was in New York City on duty in lower Manhattan on the morning that that happened. I was sitting at my desk and I got the call to go out and to go downtown to that. She said, I was driving downtown and thinking about my children at home. And she said, "Uh, this is the first time in 10 years that I've come to anything remotely connected to 9-11. She said, I did not want to hear about it, do anything, go to any event, see anything about it. She said, I knew sometime I was going to do that, but I didn't do it until now. And she said, when I saw this, I thought that I could trust this place to be a place that I'd feel all right. So I'm telling you this story. And I'm telling you this story. After she sat down, a man whose last name I don't know, it's not a secret because uh, he then stood up. He had been sitting up on the stage with Ruth King and Surya Das and myself. And it was his turn to speak. And we said, this is Steve, whatever his last name is. And Steve spoke standing up. He went up to the podium, and a soft-spoken, middle-aged man. And he started. He said, on the morning of uh, 9-11, he said, I was in Washington. And he said, wait a minute, I have to put something on. And he stepped off the side of the, behind the curtain. And he had a friend back there waiting to help him with a jacket. And he came back on, buttoning up what's an army jacket, and... Uh, he said that I got up that morning and I put on this ja- this jacket, which I had been wearing for 27 years. I'm a graduate of West Point. <coughs> I worked in the Pentagon. I was a colonel. I worked uh, uh, in. I was one of the people in charge of retaliatory strikes, should anything ever happen to us. 
He said, on that morning, I got up. He said, wait a minute, I'm not comfortable, actually, in this jacket. I don't wear it anymore. So he said, I just wanted, I wanted you to see it. And he said, and I also want to honor the 27 years that I spent in the military and the extraordinary people that I worked with and their good intentions, and which I, I really honored that very much. So he took off his jacket, passed it away, and he said, okay. He said, so I got up and I got dressed and I went to work and I went into the Pentagon and I walked down the wing of the building where I worked and I passed by a conference room that was full of people, uh, my, my colleagues having a conference. And uh, I looked in and I said, uh, do you need me in this conference? And they said, no, no, we're fine. We've got to just go on, do whatever you need to do. So he continued on and he said, and I passed the... Um, the staff sergeant that was in charge of uh, affairs there. And then I passed the adjutant to the general. And I went into my office, and I turned on my email, and I started work. And uh, the adjutant came in and said to me, you know, look look what's coming in over the television. Look what's happened to New York. He said, so I looked at that. I immediately printed out the directives for response, because that was what my job was. And I took them into the general in his office next to mine to to have him sign those directives. And I gave them to him, and he gave me some instruction to go back to my office and do something, and he was signing those directives. So I walked back in my office, and he said, it was the loudest noise I've ever heard. And uh, he said, I don't remember what happened. There was a big shake and the loudest noise I'd ever heard. And the next thing I knew, I woke up, I was on the floor... And a piece of ceiling had fallen down on me. And I must have been unconscious. I'm not sure how long. But I woke up and I heard a voice. It was all smoky and dark. And a voice said, anyone there, anyone there? And he said, uh, I called out, I'm here. And there was a light way down the hall. Someone was holding a flashlight. And they said, come towards the light, come towards the light. He talked about stumbling out towards the light and getting out of the building. Then he said... The men in the conference room all died, and the adjutant died, and the aide died, and the general died. Of all those people, 28 of my closest colleagues died, and I didn't. And I I get really... And he said, I've never told this story publicly before, and I needed to do it. Then he went on to say... I went out the building, he said, and I knew I was supposed to go down into the basement where the, I guess, the, the, the planning room for retaliatory strikes, he said. But I actually couldn't get back in because the flow of people going out was too thick, the throngs of people leaving. He said, I lived a few blocks away. He said, I knew I wasn't well, so I went home and I, I tried to clean up and shower and clear my mind and... Ultimately, he said, I went to the hospital and it turned out I had a concussion. But uh, in, you know, I went home. And he said, that, and the next day I went back to work. And he said, and I continued to go to work for some period of time after that. And he said, ultimately, and he didn't, he didn't like resign precipitously. He stayed there. He did what he could do. He worked in whatever way he could for, I think, two years, but and made all the arrangements. He said, when I resigned my commission, I resigned with all honors and with a, a ceremony of gratitude. So I, I did that part right. He said, but I couldn't do that anymore. 
I couldn't be in a position. I could not do. I couldn't be a person planning retaliatory strikes. Um, he said, but then it, it didn't. I wasn't well after that. He said, and then he talked at some in some detail about his difficulties finding something meaningful to do, his difficulties with his mind. He alluded to different difficulties, maybe with drugs, maybe with alcohol. Uh, and some and some time went by, some years went by, and someone said, you need a trauma therapist. And it's a wonderful, This is, he told the story, so I'll tell it to you because it's a wonderful piece of miracle. He said there were three, they gave me three names, and I said, no, not this one, it's, I don't want to go, that, it's too hard to drive there, not this one, it's, it's not convenient to drive there, this one, I'll go. Picked out that one for some reason of driving convenience. It turned out he talked to the woman therapist uh, for a while on the phone, and she asked him where he had grown up, and it turned out it was from her same city. And his name seemed familiar to her, and uh, talk, 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 and she said, does my name seem familiar to you? And he said, no, not at all. She said, well, matter of fact, I was your babysitter when you were six years old. <laughs> so... So uh, he went to see her as a therapist. And I think it was she who turned him on to um, the Insight Meditation Center of Washington and Tara Brock's community. And then he said, and he tells this whole story in a quiet voice. And then he said, in fact, the Dharma saved my life. And it was like, you know, the Dharma saved my life. And very undramatic, just told his story plain out. He said, I didn't tell it to anybody before this story. But um, talking to Tara, talking to Tara's husband, I knew that I had to tell it publicly, and this seemed to be the place to do it. So that was that. And I thought about, um, actually, as I was walking today back and forth, I thought about, I was just going to tell you that story. And I thought about the story um, that isn't mythical. This is a piece of, well, who knows what of Buddha's stories are mythical. But this is definitely an historical fact that uh, about 300 years after the life of the Buddha, uh, in a certain kingdom, the king Ashoka was uh, very strong. It was a very strong kingdom. It uh, it uh, uh, had warlike relationships with other kingdoms around, I guess, as kingdoms or principalities did. And uh, the story is told about um, a tremendous battle between Ashoka's country and another country, warriors. And Ashoka, the morning after the battle, uh, walking through the battlefield, they'd won the battle, walking through the battlefield, and seeing the carnage, all the dead warriors, all the dead horses, all the wasted lives. And, and suddenly, after a, a, a lifetime of living with that as an assumption, that war is the assumption, he walks through it and he's devastated by the havoc of what happened. And uh, in, in the middle, the story goes, in the middle of him walking there, he sees a monk walking along in monk's clothing, 
through in his line of vision across the, the across the battlefield. They have no no discussion as far as the story goes. But he sees the monk, and he and the monk somehow, in his demeanor, he he is overwhelmed with the sense that one possibility for human beings is to live with a mind and a body of peace. That the monk so embodies or radiates a sense of peacefulness that he himself at that moment, looking around at the havoc and the devastation, is converted to peace. And from then on, and there are historical records to show that, Ashoka reigns, uh, continues to be the reigning monarch, but in a peaceful way, without making wars, and uh, he's determined to uh, 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 legislate his kingdom in a, in a judicious way that would have fit with what the Buddha taught about morality. And uh, at some point last year, I read what were the actual changes that he made legally that uh, actually made it a more just uh, country. I've forgotten exactly what they were. But it is a real story. Um, there wasn't Ashoka, and he did do that. And I thought about this morning, and I thought about telling the story about Ashoka, which people sometimes do when they're teaching, or t- telling the story about Steve. And if it isn't the same story, you know, that... Uh, and maybe it's the universal story, if we really got it how terrible it is to, you know, hear one minute here all our friends who are alive and then they're not and how terribly devastating that is. <coughs> not to say that uh, the, a feeling of, uh, of um, not to say that a feeling of sadness and grief so it doesn't come over you peacefulness of bereavement, I think that as as human beings, I don't know a feeling worse than bereavement. My my friends who have <coughs> my friends who have lost children, for instance, say to me, "You cannot imagine this feeling," and I think I can't. I think I can't. You know, when, if I even think about it in my mind. It can't exist in my mind. The mind has like a, a barrier to imagining that. I'm just remembering that I, I started to read David Grossman's book. What's the name of it? Uh, It has a better name, To the End of the Land. To the End of the Land, it's called in English. And Hebrew called it Woman Running Away from yeah. News. And you know what? So far, I started it three times, and I can't read it. Yeah, the beginning is difficult. The be- I mean, I, I, after, I read the very beginning, but then when she starts to run, mm-hmm. her anguish mm-hmm. is so terrible to read that I, I even get tears in my eyes. I can't read it, and I say, okay... I'm going to wait for the next time that I can tolerate to read it and start again with it. David Grossman's a, a, one of the preeminent novelists in Israel at this point, and his child was killed. Um, and it's a story about a woman whose 
frightened that her son in the army will be killed. And anyway, let me just say one sentence because I want to hear what you what you're thinking. What? If there was something else I wanted to say, what were you going to say? No, I was going to ask you about the Steve story. I mean, there wasn't a retaliatory a, a, attack after. I mean, there wasn't, you know, he signed this thing. I mean, are you saying that because all these people died, they didn't die? I'm not sure. I thought about it later. I'm sure, I'm not sure why there wasn't a retaliatory strike because there was a lot of things that said, why didn't planes scramble? Why didn't this happen? Why there were, I mean, we, we declared war on Iraq and, and Afghanistan, but not that minute. No, no, but, and, and the, the Afghanistan and the Iraq is probably the, who knows? Let's leave the politics out because it's, but in that moment, not, and I'm not sure why I thought about that. Yeah. I thought about that in that moment. Why didn't something happen? Well, apparently there were planes scrambled to um, to attack the plane that was um, coming. That was ultimately yeah, you know, like crashed in in Shanksville. Yeah, but the passengers yeah um, took over before they could get to it. Yeah, I heard. I did. Yeah, it's a, I thought about that also. What would have happened <laughs> if he would have signed and they would have not hit? I don't know. Um, but I thought about um, I thought about Steve's story a lot of times between then and you know I've had two uh, two week and a half since then to think about it. I think about uh, you know I could I, I told the story this morning because it was on my mind and it was a, a story I wanted to tell in honor of Steve and in honor of his being able to come out and tell his story. I want that because I think it's a story about healing, attempting to heal from trauma. Uh, I, I think it's a story, be, a story I wanted to tell because I wanted to say, and the Dharma saved my life. Uh, because I think a lot of people would say that short of having been devastated in that particular way, people who are struggling with addictions, who are able to overcome them, would say, because of Dharma practice, would say, and the Dharma saved my life. People in all kinds of challenge who discover that they have the reserve to keep on going that, that would say, and the Dharma, it, because they had somehow been inspired by uh, Dharmic teachings, would say that. So I wanted to be able to say that. I wanted to honor that uh, policewoman who told her story. Also, because I think that the, 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 the message that I really took away, that I think we all take away from any of those stories, is that uh, the it's it's so the uh, that retaliatory strike is so the uh, reflexive movement when we've been really devastated, and what will it take for the world to not do that? Really, say I'm stopping that, because otherwise we're all going to end up with no world. At some point, there has to be some truce that says everything that's terrible has already happened, and now we're starting again. I, I have a, I, you know, I had such a feeling this spring. I, I know I've told you this a lot, that um, not saying that the 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 changing governments in in uh, North Africa and the Middle East have been without problems or without problems even after the monarchies have been deposed. The fact that a lot of those tremendous changes happened peacefully, where lots of people came together. 
And the hallmark of the Cairo experience was that the overthrowing itself was a, was a quite a peaceful, and by design, a peaceful experience of enough people get in the, come out and say, we don't want to do this anymore. This has to go. I think about, I've, I've been telling people about it and saying, in, those, in all those experiences, what people wanted to do is they wanted to liberate themselves from a tyrannical or, uh, or tyrannical unjust regimes. And I think that what the world is wanting to liberate itself from, well, maybe it doesn't know it yet, is to liberate ourselves from greed, hatred, and delusion, and liberate ourselves from impulsive response to being hurt, and really be able to transcend um, that we get, as people, we get mad. And as people, we have a larger uh, brain. We have bigger brains than reptiles. We don't just... uh, uh, we don't just fight or flight. We could get mad and say, this isn't working. Let's do something else. That inhibitory reflex is part. Of the, when I come back next week, maybe I'll be more conversant about Karen Armstrong and how it gets changed actually from a, 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 a um, reflexive response to uh, a modulated response. How are we going to, out of compassion, take care of each other and this world? So, it, so the planet survives and the people. So that's what I did, and we're out of time. Um, I was going to ask you, so I'll do it now anyway. What do you think about Was that a worthwhile story to tell? Did it remind? Is it different from telling Ashoka, um, because it's now, and because we heard of it? Was it too difficult to hear? See, I think there has to be a way. What we tried to do in that weekend was to tell the difficult stories in a way that wasn't frightening. I'll tell. If can you sit one more minute? I'll tell you one more. I'll tell you an act of kindness that was telling a difficult story in a way that didn't frighten and i'm sure it was a, i'm sure it was a a deliberate act of kindness and i maybe i told you this but anyway earlier this summer i had been teaching i've been teaching in another retreat center on the east coast and uh, to tell it briefly on the first day people are often sleepy in the first day of a retreat but okay they wake up and you tell people, don't lie down. You know, don't lie down. If you lie down, you'll sleep worse. Try, try to sit up, lean on the wall. And second day, people still sleep. You don't lie down, we say. There's a man lying down right in the middle of the room, right in front of me. Everybody's sitting, trying to stay up, and he's lying down and sleeping. And once you said, don't lie down, you can't unsay it, you know, and you can't say it again. It's, it's, it's plain. Don't lie down. It's don't lie down. He's lying down. You don't want to say it again because that's rubbing it in. Anyway, he's lying down. Next day, and I must say, I don't must say, but in order to tell you the story, I need to tell you that I thought some un, 
charitable thoughts about him because he, you know, I gave that instruction, don't lie down, and he's lying down in the middle of everything. It's bad for the vibe of the room, you know, and it's everybody's morale is lying. Anyway, so, and I was teaching with two other people who uh, also were disconcerted by him. And the third day, as we're leaving at lunchtime, we say to everybody, okay, it's lunchtime, we'll see you later. And there's a silent retreat, people filing out. And a woman tripped and fell down uh, and uh, hurt her ankle. And she couldn't get up. And so we'd say to everybody, just go ahead, we'll take care of it. It's myself and two teachers that I'm teaching with. And we're making this woman comfortable trying to. And she's in tremendous pain. And she can't stand up. So we're talking about, should we call the paramedics? And uh, trying to soothe her and reassure her. And um, all of a sudden, we're on the floor next to this woman lying down. And all of a sudden, here, insinuating himself into our little knot of people, is the formerly sleeping man <laughs> who, who ta- moves in and, in a quiet, authoritative way, takes over. He says, You know, I used to be a paramedic. He said, I am a paramedic. And he, you know, you should lie this way. And he fixes her leg. And he's massaging her leg and turning a little bit this way, that way. And he's so soothing to her. And we're talking about should we call the paramedics. And ultimately we did because she needed to go and have it x-rayed. And she certainly couldn't stand up. But while we're sitting with her, he's talking to her and smoothing her ankle. And he's singing to her a a Hindu uh, healing chant. So he's this guy, he's a paramedic who sings Hindu healing chants. <laughs> uh, and and the, the paramedics come and they take the woman away. And then I stay and I'm talking to this man and uh, thanking him for doing that. And he said, well, um, I, you know, I am a paramedic. But he, but he told me he was retired, and I had been wondering, why is he retired? He's very young. He was very young. He said, uh, I, uh, I'm also a fireman, and, um, but I'm retired. We'll talk a little bit more. He said, I'm retired for about 10 years. And, and he's taking his time telling me. And then he said, uh, I worked in Lower Manhattan. And he didn't say anything else. And the act of kindness that I'm telling you about, remember I said, was it painful for you to hear that story? I said to him, were you there in 9-11? And he said, I was. Matter of fact, I was in Building 1. And um, as it was starting to come down, he said, and I have permanent smoke damage in my lungs, which is why I really needed to retire but I was very impressed as I thought the story over and over again in the time that passed after that. I thought that he was so kind in the telling me of it. He didn't rush to tell me what he was. He was giving me hints so that I could say, were you there in 9-11? And then he could say, yes, I was. Because it's shocking to say I was in 9-11 as the building was falling down. And I thought, I don't know if he planned that as an act of kindness, but I felt it as an act of kindness. And it was a kind of restraint on his part from telling. 
And he had said, he said earlier in the conversation, <laughs> I'm having a lot of trouble staying awake. He said, because my mind is not the best these days. And when we talked further, you know, really he's had a troubled 10 years. Um, he said, I've studied a lot of yoga. That's how come he knows those healing chants. He said, I'm trying to find something else I can do as a profession that'll be helpful to people. Maybe I'll be a yoga teacher, maybe. And uh, meantime, I'm with him, and I'm so impressed with his kindness in not assaulting me with his story. And I'm impressed with his, his trying to put himself together so he can continue to be helpful. He says, I'm looking for another profession that'll be helpful to people. I'm impressed with that. I am humbled in my mind thinking about my uncharitable thoughts. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, was, I was so relieved. I mean, I knew those thoughts. I was very relieved that he didn't know what I was thinking. But I'm very relieved that I hadn't said anything else about would you mind sitting up or something like that. Because what I really learned from that is you never really know anything about anybody, that you make decisions about people. I make decisions about people. This is a worthy person behaving in a dignified way in the class like everybody else or not. And I don't know a thing about them. I don't know what's his background. I thought about it a lot since. I really think I should rehearse. If somebody is doing something that looks against the grain and out of place and it looks like it's the wrong thing to do, everybody's doing something else, they probably don't feel good. There's probably something the matter with them. And before I make a decision that I don't like them or I put them out of my heart in some way and I think, ugh, I wish this guy wasn't lying down in the middle of the class, maybe I could restrain that thought a little bit and instead of it in its place, think this person is probably in pain and may they be well. All right. So now it's six minutes after. I will sit for 30 seconds while we make a dedication of merit. I would like to remind you, although I spared you today and me, the long harangue about you know what, but you might not know what. So where is it? I own this little pin that says I have signed up with a thousand Buddhas. So if you haven't, please take a paper. Where are those papers? They should. Where? They're beside me. Yes, in the folder. In the folder. If you don't have one of these papers, would you be so kind as to take a paper and seriously think about joining? You don't have to join. Just, I really, really, really want you to seriously think about it. So pass, pass. And if you, they don't come around, go and ask for one. And uh, if you don't even have a paper, go home and go online and look at www.thousandsofbuddhas.org. Because the website is getting better. The website, if you click on teachings, will have a different one of us every day doing a little dharmet, a little dharma talk. So it's a very cute to go on, the, to go on the website every day. And while you're on the website, try to join. Try to join. It's a good thing to belong to. That was the shortest I ever did. See? I promise you, if you all come in with these little pins on, I won't say another word about it. May all of the good that arises in our minds from our mutual dedication to peace and goodwill in our hearts on behalf of ourselves and our families, our communities, our workplaces, our world, may all of that um, energy and rededication 
to uh, a heart of peace and a world of peace. May it follow us into this week and into this world and may it radiate through us, through everyone we meet for the benefit of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.